I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. Thames Valley Police have set up a special casualty bureau to answer inquiries about the dead and injured. There are five lines. The numbers are 08675 71531 to 35. I'll repeat that number. The code is 08675 and the number itself 71531 to 35. And the police stress that those numbers are for relatives of the victims only and not for any other cause. The market town of Hungerford in Berkshire is sealed off by armed police tonight. At lunchtime in the town's high street, which was crowded with market day shoppers, a man armed with an automatic rifle went berserk. The majority were shot in the high street. One of those killed was a policeman. Tonight, scores of armed police are searching Hungerford and the countryside around it. All people in the area have been told to lock themselves into their homes. The gunman also set a house on fire. It burned out of control because the emergency services were unable to approach the scene. The town itself is still in a state of shock. Many people know the gunman and can scarcely believe what's happened. Welcome to I Can Murder a Podcast. It's that time of week again. We are back. And Ben Carter, how are you doing? Really good. Really happy to be here. Bright and early in the morning. The air is crisp. I feel a change in the in the in the winds. You got here half an hour late. I've, I, you told me you were going to be late. Yeah. So you already on your way I when mean, I said I, that. I took my journey a bit more leisurely. Allegedly or leisurely? Because did you go to leisurely first? Allegedly leisurely. Okay. Shit. <laughs> I have been reading examples of tongue twisters this morning just in preparation for this app and that could be quite a good one. Legedly, allegedly set off. That sounds, it doesn't sound a great one. Dan, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, thanks. It is crisp in the air, isn't it? Uh, yesterday is the first official day of autumn. Thanks, Fun Dan. Fact. Lovely orange leaves. Yes. Guys, I, I have an idea which I haven't told you about. He does this. I do do this. So we we mentioned in the uh, Waco case about an ICMAP cult. Okay. I thought, with our lovely listeners, let's start let's start building this cult. Could people maybe request to be the resident? I don't know if we've got some doctors, a resident doctor for the cult, psychologist. Yeah, well, yeah. It's the things to build a cult to be a strong cult. So we need we need people. It doesn't have to be a job. It could be you have a good skill. Yeah. If you're knitters. I, yeah, knitters. Always need knitters. Uh, builders. Yes, yeah, probably a job as well. But yeah, um, so yeah, I thought, why not? Why can't we have people apply and they be a resident member of the cult? So if you guys, uh, what do you think is best, over email or, or over... Uh, I think if we deal mainly with the cult via email and keep the social media contact, you know, more related to social media uh, events... You email us at hello at icmap.co.uk. We'll read some out on the next uh, the next episode, and we can start, you know, welcoming people into the fold. What I was thinking we could do is take their 
current occup- occupations, yeah. put them all into a hat, mix it up, and if I then start you know, assigning them randomly, maybe I end up as the doctor of the cult. I don't know how that... W- well, we, we put everyone that applies current occupations into a hat, we mix it up, and they get given a new, a new life, a new chance in this cult, and maybe I'll end up being the doctor. Now, I like my idea of them applying with their role. and we, yeah. They can kind of sell themselves a bit in a paragraph and then we decide right. whether or not we'll welcome them. In this we don't cult. have to mix it up. No, because it just sounds a bit messy and a bit un- ill thought out. So we'll go with, we'll go okay. with my idea. Yeah. Um, but you, you're, we've already got the bell towers already covered. Yes. So the bell ringer, we don't need that. But if you do want it to be kind of mixed up, then just in the title of the email, put cult application in brackets, shuffle. <laughs> And we'll but I don't even get how that works. So you, for example, so basically anyone can anyone can message just saying I want to be part of the cult, and then you're going to have a big bag of jobs. Yeah, big bag of jobs. Yeah, that's just Dan. Yeah, help me out here. I'm with Tom on this. I'm sorry, Ben. It's, it, it's that's a bit fine. confusing. It's um, confusing. The but what if I told you, Dan, you could end up as the resident hot air balloon? Dan, second in command of the cult. No, we're all equals. <laughs> no, equal firsts. No, no, no. We're equal firsts. No. We've talked about this. No, we're not. You're in the bell tower. But um, oh, yes, enough. so let us know over the email. Hello, icmp.co.uk. A little paragraph about what is your skill or your job and a little application. And we'll read some out in the next podcast and we'll make a decision between us mm. if we're going to welcome you into the cult. More around uh, today's episode. Well, yes, a few things to talk about, first of all, actually. We did the audience vote, obviously. It came down to Ted Bundy and the Port Arthur Massacre. And at the time of filming, it looks very much like the Port Arthur Massacre has slightly edged Bundy. The beautiful thing about that is today's case, Tom, actually won the poll. Yes, um, yes. I, I was very happy to see that. I, I picked this case, not because I was very familiar with it, but because I remember seeing it quite popular in, in votes before. A lot of people yeah. requested this case. So I thought... We should do this case. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's lovely to see when you pick a case that does well in the charts. Absolutely. And I was up in the bell tower brimming from ear to ear when what I saw him. Up there? Brimming. Oh, well, I was going to say, it's just you up there alone. So yeah, I don't know how you'd be doing. I got 4G. It dropped from 5G. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> brimming. Nah, that's what I meant. But terrific news. A less positive note. Uh, the finale didn't get a single vote. No, that's good. Mysterious. Yeah, we always like to end the series on one that we don't think people are going to expect. I'd put that mm. as a good thing, Ben. I think you picked a very good case to end on, which, again, which I would argue people probably haven't voted for any of our finales in any of the audience votes. I think that's very true. Because they're always a bit rogue, a bit yeah, out there. This one is particularly rogue. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It definitely is. Yeah. But yeah, so we're, so, yeah, we're excited to, to obviously cover that. Well, we think it's going to be Port Arthur, so we're excited to cover that for you guys. And thank you so much for everyone getting involved. It's always exciting to see the numbers. And Ben did a little bit of a campaign against Bundy. I um, did. He was like, I really like Port Arthur Massacre. Don't, don't, I didn't say it like that at oh. all. No. Wait and see what we've got coming for the rest of the series because there are some very big cases coming up. Mm. Um, and, you know, Ted Bundy, let's put him on the shelf for now. I appreciate that we've, we've chatted away for a while, but just very quickly, we hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode, The Unabomber. I found that a fascinating case. It truly was, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. And a, a big thank you, as always, for all the lovely feedback, all the new listeners, all the new viewers. A reminder that we are on all audio platforms as well as one visual platform, which is YouTube. There's video episodes and audio episodes of every case that we cover. And if you guys just can't wait for another pod, why not head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash couldmurderapod. We have 82 episodes on there. Overall, I think it's getting close to 90 videos on there. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, but in terms of minisodes, yeah. it's about 80-odd eight, on there of cases you guys vote for on pick so we talked about potentially doing an iq test on me yes um, for the patreon crew yes, yes we will be uh, that, i think that definitely should happen uh, the, the the result of that iq test will be higher than the number of episodes on patreon that's a bold claim definitely 
<laughs> right? I should be all right. Yeah, so, I don't know. If you eat Eccles cakes that morning, you might be fine. Uh, but um, anyway, Ben. I don't like Eccles I don't like Eccles cakes. I don't like Eccles cakes. <laughs> you speak it like an eel. It's another tongue twister, isn't it? Not really. Yeah. Everything is with you. <laughs> Can I have a pound of sausages, please? <laughs> That's you talking to a fishmonger. In France. So we're now down to the final four episodes of series six. We arrive at the Hungerford Massacre. Now, this was one that, from this, when we first sat down and planned the series out, you were very keen to cover, and I think you've picked another fascinating one here. It also goes by the name The Case of Michael Ryan, which is lesser used, The Spree That Changed Britain, or The Hungerford Shooting. Sometimes you think names, they are a bit grandiose and a bit over the top, but this case is... Oh. It's, it's, the, the word massacre is well and truly fitted with this one, definitely. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And there's so much to unpack with this case. There's actually some very interesting conspiracies because there's not a lot that, as we'll go on to discuss, has been left behind by mm. the perpetrator, but some very interesting theories I've got for you uh, to, to share. I'm looking forward to I, you going into them. Thank you so much. Um, I really but, am. Yeah, th good. That's really good. So uh, this case will actually go on to change UK gun laws forever. And together with the Dunblane massacre, it is considered one of the deadliest mass shootings in UK history. And Ben, do you... Um, have a quote to start us off? I have indeed. This quote comes from the official Hungerford police uh, inquest into the incident. The Hungerford incident is quite unprecedented in the British experience, and we can but hope no similar incident will ever occur again. Not only was it more violent and unpredictable than anything previously encountered, but it also occurred at a location which could hardly be more remote. So this was the largest scale mass shooting in the UK prior to Dunblane. So we're going to go into Michael Ryan's early life, and see you know, where he grew up, how he grew up, and if there was any early signs of the life he would go on to lead. Michael Robert Ryan was born on the 18th of May 1980 in Marlborough, which is a small town in Wiltshire, England. Spelt... Are you okay? Yeah, I was just in a smoking cigarette. Were you? Marlborough. Do you, it's getting cooler as well, so the condensation cigarettes will be back in season, oh, literally. I usually do a um, steam train. What's that? Do you know what a steam train is? I know what a steam train yeah, is. So I've just never did... seen it done with... Condensation. Yeah. Well, it can very be done. Cool. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Yeah. Might try that. Please do. Okay. I'll get up early so it's cooler. Uh, literally. Marlborough, Wiltshire. Spelt slightly differently to the cigarettes, Marlborough is located 80 miles west of London and it is also notable as the town where the Lord of the Flies author William Golding grew up. But that isn't my uh, interesting fact of the day. Oh, really? Michael would go on to be raised in the small town of Hungerford, which is not far from Marlborough. These are my interesting facts of today. Play the jingle. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Are they? I don't know. Interesting facts. Facts. So, first question I want to ask, and we'll put it out to you boys. Do you know how Hungerford got its name or the meaning of Hungerford? Whenever I hear the name Hungerford, I think of Shreddies. Um, yeah. Keeping it locked up till lunch. I drove past it the other day on the way back from Bristol. Hungerford? Like, yeah. Wow. Where would they get it from, the name Hungerford? I'll give you a clue if you Ford. like. It's Ford, it's Ford River. Little River. So, um, Hungerford. So, maybe they would catch... Fish when they're hungry from the river. Interesting. That's any, terrible. Any advances on that, Danny boy? That sounds bloody brilliant. Oh, okay. The name Hungerford is derived from the Anglo-Saxon name, meaning ford, leaning to poor land. Oh. Yeah, so it's hungry for a ford. <laughs> I thought it meant just a very dry bit of land because it needed water, but... Did yeah. You, did you think that before that? I, had, I sort of separated the words hunger and ford, and I remember ford is like a little river, isn't it? Yeah. Like a little river. I don't know. And I thought maybe that means it's hungry for a ford needing a river in the needing some then, rain. Okay, dry place. Um, Naming the place for what it place could, needs. They used to Sounds do that though, bit, didn't they? Did they? Like um, 
They used to do that. Did, okay, they did. Yeah, I, th- I think I've read. So my interest in fat boys, property in Hungerford is said to be very much sought after, with the average price of a property in Hungerford between the years of 2021 and 2022 fetching a fee of £346,281. And a majority of those, uh, as small towns often are, were uh, terraced properties. And with a low property density, Hungerford enjoys a consistently high property demand. But limited supply, of course, um, which I thought was interesting. But then when I jumped on to write, really interesting. Yeah, If you're looking for a location, perhaps you work from home or you you might commute to London. I mean, that is a long commute, to be fair. But some people do long commutes, don't they? Yeah, they certainly do. But I jumped on um, Rightmove and they've got loads on there at the moment. There's about 50 odd houses. I mean, they start at sort of the upwards over half a million through to a million with most of them. But there was a little one cheap 150, not cheap. You sound flustered. I am flustered. Um, I don't want to call a £150,000 house cheap. It is cheap. It, yeah, it's cheap. Yeah. I feel more confident now that you've said it. Well, it is cheap for a house nowadays. It's, yeah, absolutely. And according to a recent study, Hungerford is the number one town to live in in all of Berkshire. But again, saying that there was loads listed, so I don't know if what I've necessarily shared is truth. Unless you live for golf, horses, angling or antiques, there is not much to do, see or buy in Hungerford. And for most of the locals, that is just how they like it. If anyone's just skipped a bit into the podcast to get rid of past our waffle and they get yeah. to this stage. Yeah. It's also not far from Reading. And it's also, interestingly, between Swindon and Slough. Is that interesting? Well, the office is kind of... This, we could put a photo of David Brent up there or something like that, maybe. That'll make it interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Right, so um, that done? We gave you the Ford stuff. Yeah, then you kind of ran off with trying to sell people Hungerford as a town to live in. Uh, well, there's lots available right now, but they said it's very rarely happened. So if you're an investor, maybe have a look. What do you think about that, Dan? I actually found the Lord of the Flies author fact quite interesting. That was. Well, we could move I, that I thought, into my I interesting thought we were, That should have been the main I thought we could fact. go into a bit, ah, bit more shit. about him and the yeah. story of Lord of the Flies would be more interesting. Yeah. But we went down a route of just property. Never read it. It doesn't stop you. <laughs> you haven't seen Social Networking. You referenced it the other I, week. I, I lied about that. I'd watched it. Why'd you lie? It's cool. Is it? <laughs> Literally. So Michael was the only child of Alfred Henry Ryan and Dorothy Ryan, a working class couple that had quite a significant age gap. The pair seemingly did everything for their son, but had drastically different parenting styles. Alfred had children from a previous relationship, and it was speculated that Michael was very envious of his other children. So let's talk about the age gap, uh, first of all. Let's do that. You like an age gap, don't you? Sorry? You don't, bitch. Go on. That could be perceived terribly. I see. Okay, um, you like an age gap, don't you? You said the same thing again. (laughs) What's the limit? I don't know. We've got good personality. It doesn't. And lots of money. Suggesting there's no limit. I need a sugar mummy. <laughs> there probably be you some. need some listening. sugar mummy? I need a sugar mummy. Oh, okay. Don't. Come on. You heard me right the first time. <laughs> Let's talk about the age gap then, first of all. So Alfred was 55 at the time of Michael's birth, whilst Dorothy was 35. Ooh. 20 year age gap. It, is, yeah. it has been speculated that becoming uh, parents at a slightly older age, particularly for Alfred, is the reason why they opted not to have any additional children. Although Alfred also had children from a previous uh, relationship, so that could also be why. Me Jagger still. He is, yeah. All right. <laughs> Not for a spirit, me. I can't do it. I was, doing, I was trying to do the trip impression of him, the trip doing the impression of him. That's there like, are motions to that impression, guys. If you're joining via audio, come and have a look. We could turn it into a GIF. No context. ICMAP would be the sort. That's when you know you've made it. Yeah, that's something I, I would. Guys, just a hint. If you, Ooh. if you want to, you could get high up in the cult if you start that. Yeah, a giffer. You'd be third, third in charge if you start that. Fourth. Sorry. 
Well, actually, joint second because there's three people that joined first. Just second. Are there? <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Continue. Being the only child, Michael was very much doted on and sport by his mother, which we are going to go into some more detail about. However, his father, despite being incredibly fond of his son, was said to rule the house with a bit of an iron fist. Just a bit of one. Just a bit, yeah. Just the thumb and the little finger. What's less less of a solid than iron? Copper? That's probably more solid. What's Steel. a really What's a really mouldable metal? Steel. Aluminium. He ruled the house with a bit of an aluminium fist. No, just aluminium. do a bit of. It could just be... Oh, well. He ruled the house with a... Aluminium fist. Yes, there you are. Dorothy often rewarded Michael's misbehaviour. She very much shielded Michael from society and anything she didn't like. She essentially hid him from the real world. So Michael's mother, Dorothy, was a dinner lady, which I did make a note of this. Is that a universal term? Lunch lady. Lunch lady. She basically helped out with the lunch at, at schools. Brecky bird. Brecky bird, yeah. And his father, Alfred, was a building inspector for the local council, so his father earned pretty good money. Michael's mother, Dorothy, would also later become a waitress to generate additional income for the family. Not a lot of information is available regarding Michael's childhood, but what we do know is that he generally had quite a pleasant, albeit very lonely childhood, so he basically didn't have to want after anything at all in life. But there are some elements that we're going to go on to talk about that are quite... Not traumatic. That was, that was a weird noise. Um, <laughs> there are some elements. Basically, what I found interesting was... <laughs> so basically, he doesn't share a lot of commonalities with other mass shooters, spree killers that we've covered. There are some small incidents in his life that obviously... He was bullied a little bit. I'll mm. say it. He was bullied a little bit. But apart from that, it's a bizarre set of circumstances mm. here. But yeah, I mean, he was he was looked after by his parents. He didn't have much of a relationship with the dad, but very, very close to his mum. Was absolutely doted on. Spoiled. A real lack of pictures. Yeah. Isn't there? There's like yeah. one of him little and one of him, the one that's more famous of him, yeah. him older. That's been, other than that, lookalikes are going to be good. I've got one, but I've worked on it hard. Uh, his parents spoiled him as a child. He was given all the toys, records and clothes he wanted and was always very well looked after. As a result of this, Michael became extremely close and very dependent on his mother from a very early age. At school, Michael, who went by his surname, Ryan, typically kept himself to himself and found it very challenging to socialise and also had a lot of difficulty making friends. He was described by other students and teachers as being a loner and occasionally someone that fell victim to bullying. And as a result of this, he was also bullied by other students for being different yeah i mean everything i could find suggested that he was very quiet wouldn't speak to anyone unless they spoke to him first mm. but i can't i couldn't find anything in terms of why he was bullied apart from the fact that maybe he just showed signs of vulnerability by being quiet being a bit of a mummy's boy perhaps yeah but i, I even when we go into this i don't think he was a, as as aware of the fact he was a, a mummy's boy i think he was socially very yeah but if they're aware that's why they're bullying him that's a valid point, but him not being aware meant that he couldn't change the situation he was in. Sometimes people with elder parents, even though his mum wasn't older, can be a bit of a nan kid. A nan kid? Mm. What's that? You know, just a kid who seems... A nan? I've never heard that term. Nan kid. I've, I've only heard it from Russell Brown Ponderland, which is great. But it's a, it's, it's a kid who like gets into bacon and, <laughs> and doing very nan-based activities. Okay. Often see him with a cup of tea and be chatting away to his nan. Oh, yeah, so, I mean, he was an only child, and he did, from what I could find, he did never really interacted with any kids on his street, didn't make any friends at all at school, and also had no interaction with his, his father's other children. I mean, I know plenty of only childs that turned out just fine. I know one that's a bit, for the most part, the one that I do know is that's, that's a bit of a, is fine, unless they've had a few drinks. But the only child thing <laughs> is interesting. 
So Andy Richens, who knew Ryan at school, said he was a very quiet person and seemed to do his own sort of thing. He was very much alone. Myself and a friend was playing in a barn one day. The next thing, the door was being peppered with an air rifle. After the firing stopped, we came out with our hands up, very frightened. Basically, that was Michael playing around as a youngster with an air rifle, shooting at barns. Mm. The barns weren't the only thing he would shoot, Tom. Ooh. He would also shoot up road signs and. As Tom said, there are very limited photos of this case, but there are some photos of road signs that he would shoot up. So here you go. Michael also was alleged to have shot into fields where there were many farm animals. However, this was not reported to police at the time. So Michael would only ever speak with people if they said hello first, and never got involved in socially in classes or engaged in any sports or clubs. He was very much a mummy's boy, but very much okay with that. So as Ben mentioned earlier on, there wasn't many traits that you could link Michael with other um, spree shooters or uh, mass shooters. He had a good relationship with his parents, he didn't experience any abuse, and he had no criminal history. A little bit of bullying, a little bit lonely, but we can't really see anything else other than that. So on the on the bullying, Michael very rarely shared the fact that he was being bullied um, with his parents. And again, I still don't know from what we know about him if he even realised he was being bullied because socially he was very behind. I mean, I know when I'm being bullied. But you're socially behind as well, so surely he would. <laughs> Fuck's sake, that was good. <laughs> but annoying. But I'm aware. Michael very rarely informed his uh, his parents of the fact that he was being bullied. As we mentioned, very limited relationship with his father. Maybe he didn't want to show any kind of sign of weakness. Instead of talking to them, he would lash out at his mother before retreating away to his bedroom in order to play with his collection of action man toys and army soldier figurines. This, from a very early age, sparked an interest in all things military. His mother never really questioned the fact that he would lash out and just thought that it was normal. So it became quite violent, didn't he? It was. It was. It he, wasn't just a case of it would actually be like physical like punching and yeah yeah again maybe a note in this is that the father because the father was essentially like right dorothy you're raising him yeah. he's your kid and then just disappeared into the background he didn't really have that male role model in yeah. his life and also kind of walked all over his mum, who would just she was essentially like a servant to him yeah so Michael never had any school friends or neighbourhood children around his house to play. With one student noting, Ryan always got everything he wanted. He said that he didn't need friends because he already had everything he needed. That's sad. I guess he's looking at the positives. As a teenager, Michael very rarely left his house. And as Ben said, he was getting more and more into toy soldiers, therefore building a fascination there. And he slowly started to build a collection of guns, army camouflage uniforms, ammunition, and additional military kit. So yeah, he's yeah. got he's gone next level with his fascination there. As you mentioned before, with air rifles and whatnot. So he's starting to build a bit of an arsenal. And he would get his mum to buy these these guns as well from a very which from a very early age you kind of have to question that from the mother. But it wasn't a thing though when people were little. I remember everyone, not everyone, but uh, it was a quite a thing to be. I always remember butterfly knives and knives being quite like oh. a cool thing. But I never never had them. Swiss Army knife. I yeah, people having them. And people going away on holiday to like. Yorker and coming back with a butterfly knife. Uh, yeah, or there thing. was like some like markets that used to sell things yeah. like that and laser pens. Yeah, laser pens um, are not quite the same. They'd all be on the same stool, I imagine. A guy selling, what are those things where you throw them at the ground and they pop? Would they be the same things? With, with I reckon knives? he'd sell, yeah, knives. That's like joke store. Yeah, but he this guy had a pretty dark sense of humour, so he'd sell like <laughs> knives, daggers, switchblades, throwing stars, uh, laser pens, and um, those things that you throw at the And little floor. torches shaped like fish. So as well as this, some strange behaviour did start to emerge. Michael became known in the town for wearing army gear and camouflage around the village. Surprised I saw him. <laughs> yeah, it's hard enough to say it, yet alone see it. Camouflage. 
This is weird. He also became known for stalking people in the woods, but never doing anything more, which in my head means they could see him despite the fact that he was trying to hide. Yeah. But also they were a bit like, that's just Michael being Michael. Just let him, he, he's harmless, which, oh. But yeah, basically it's alleged that through him hiding in the woods and watching people, he very much had a sexual appetite for that and was sexually gratified by that. It was a similar thing with Israel Keys, wasn't it? Where he would just hide in the woods for hours watching people and was very... There's a few wood-based. There are a few wooders Wood that nuts. we've covered. Yeah. yeah. Particular location where Michael would frequent was Savonake Forest. But locals, as I said, they they saw him in there and they kind of said, you know, that's just Michael being Michael. He's harmless. Ignore Michael Wankin. We're just going to finish our picnic. (laughs) So as he grew older, instead of army toys, Michael convinced his mother to start purchasing guns and ammunition, of which she did. And he would also later get various gun licenses in order to buy rifles of his own, which we will talk about in much more detail later. One thing about this case is he was did things in a legit manner. It wasn't like he was stealing guns or you know fake ID or anything like. That. He was doing things in the, the UK it fit well within the law, mm-hmm. and it was perfectly yeah, legal with all the licenses he obtained. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and as a result of this, obviously, it would change gun laws forever uh, in the UK. We are going to talk about it more uh, later on in the episode. His parents had a small barn at the bottom of their garden in which Michael would keep his initial collection of air rifles down there. Michael would very occasionally take other children from the neighbourhood down to the barn where he would show off his shooting skills and he once allegedly shot a cow in the face with an air rifle and would regularly shoot rats and rabbits. Horrible. Horrible. So Michael would then go on to leave school at the age of 16, during which time he had a very poor academic record. And he also had issues towards his final years of school with his attendance, often feigning illness or injury. Could have been like my story I was telling you boys this morning about my eye. Yes, Ben had a story when he was little. He woke up, which he didn't realise until we told him it was conjunctivitis. Couldn't, wow. op- couldn't open his eye, very scabby. Just, and just Not like, scabby. Well, just a bit like crispy. Not crispy. There's no surrounding... Um, Gunky. Gunk or liquids or solids. There was nothing. It just woke up one day I think and I left... I just misremembered. I'm, no, I'm remembering it vividly because I thought I, I could milk it as... Not the eye, but milk the situation. <laughs> so so, mil- milky eye. No, I, so I woke up, guys, and my left eye just wouldn't open. But there was no pus, mucus, whatever you want to call it. There was nothing. It just wouldn't open. I looked just like a, a bit crispy. Pirate. No. You look like a pirate. Yeah. And so I got the day off school. And then later that day, obviously, the eye opened up. Everything was fine. Was it just the eye that wasn't opening? Like that, yeah. Yeah, but everything else was fine. Everything else was so fine. why are you not going to school? Couldn't see out of one eye. That's not enough. I was about to say it's hard to read, but it's not. You yeah. can see everything. In fact, I can read better if I wink. Um, but basically the eye opened up so then the next day I had a very sympathetic I have still got a very sympathetic mother so basically then obviously the eye opened up later on I tried to convince my mum the following day that the eye wouldn't open again 30 or so minutes later she came back into the room and caught me with both eyes open so with both of my eyes open yeah sad to go to school for any sort of under nines listening which I imagine there are none I hope there are none the eye trick if you're on a day off school. You could probably get up to it. Up to the or age the, of 12, I'd yeah. say. Yeah, or the adults listening. Try it with work. Email us if, if it works. The classic way is just the old roll up a tissue to a really thin point and tickle up your nose so you sneeze loads. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. It makes you sneeze and you're like, I've got, I've got a stinking cold, mum. <laughs> get dressed and see how you feel. And then you're always like, by that stage, you're like, oh, fuck, I might as well just fucking go to school. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good trick. 
So basically, Michael left school without much of a plan. He wanted to earn money to use in order to build up his collection of various weaponry. So as a result of this, Michael took on part-time jobs as a gardener as well as a handyman. Need them for the cult, so let us know. Yeah, gardener and a handyman, yep. I feel like I could be the gardener. Depends what we want. Do we want camo grass or do we want nice? Fuck. Year round as well. No, because I'm saying, Dan, if you want a nice one, we'll have a year. But if you want camo, we'll have someone else. So, yeah, so he'd work sort of part-time odd jobs as a gardener and a handyman over the next 10 years. He also, now this kind of blends into some of the stories that Michael would go on to tell about himself, but he also attempted to work as an antiques trader during this time with very little result. He also got extremely poor grades at school, but didn't seem to have any kind of consequence as a result of that. His parents or his mother, who was, you know, primarily raising him, didn't seem to be too interested or or supportive of his academic studies. His mum was basically... His servant. Yeah, the way that he treats his mum is basically very similar to, if you're familiar with the the movies, the Hangover series of movies and and the movie The Wedding Crashers. Alan in The Hangover is horrible to his mother, bless her, absolutely horrible. And then Will Ferrell's character in uh, Wedding Crashers, also hideous to his mother. So they're just just two examples of people being bad to their mothers in in movies, Mm. which Michael Ryan, I feel, was was similar to. They beat his mum. Yeah. Michael would claim unemployment benefits over the next several years as he found it difficult to be self-employed. He was seen in supermarkets in his mid-twenties having temper tantrums with his mother, lashing out if he didn't get his way. Ben, you were saying earlier on about you having a bit of a temper tantrum in Aldi. Oh, that one. <laughs> I don't want to... No. Okay, sorry, there's a woman there who apparently... It was an old lady. No, it was a man. old lady. man in his prime. Can I finish? An old lady walking slowly down the aisle, I think you said she had a bit of a bad leg, and you were like, she's taking so long, and you nudged her a bit. No. <laughs> Absolutely. You said not. a hit broke like Ravita. Ravita, Ravita. But anyway, uh, you, you deleted a bit there, Ben. <laughs> it's a reference to you as a kid, which we'd like to dissect and see where how you ended up, how you are today. Go on. Uh, so well, so you know how like local village news agents they sell a little bit of everything, don't they? Some of them do. Some of them do. Yes. Yeah. Well, this one in my village basically they had a big glass window and they used to put different toys in there that they would also sell, but it was usually sort of like anything below. £20. It was hardly an Argos. And one day, I must have been five, six, walked past there with my Eight. mum. Go on. One eye closed. Yeah. <laughs> Stop winking at her. <laughs> Basically, in the in the window of this news agent was like a little toy set, but it was a box toy set of either, I remember it as either a farmer's set, so it had like a tractor, some yeah. animals and a, a figurines, or it was a builder's set, so it had like a concrete cement mixer ladders that sort of thing it was yeah. one of those so like little 10 pound sort of box of different toys and i really wanted it sure. really really obviously was craving it so i kicked off that my mum wouldn't get it for me and she stood her ground mum didn't Bunch. back down at yeah. all it was my birthday a few months later i thought guaranteed getting the tractor set or the builder's set didn't get it again i kicked off what and did you just, get i actually think i got um abe's odyssey on playstation one that's didn't come out until you were a bit older boy i don't know <laughs> 1997 do we are we going to Google it? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So you got that instead, you think? I hope It's much better than that. I know. But still wasn't yeah, 97 so. it was. Yeah. So you were eight. Yeah, well, seven turning eight, yeah. You said five or six. Yes, yeah, so it probably couldn't have been that. <laughs> it was, I got a video game of some sort. I might have got a Tamagotchi. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I don't. It's fine. In 1985, Michael's father, Alfred, passed away at the age of 80 after a lengthy battle with cancer. Michael's behavior seemed to change drastically from this moment onwards, quite similar to the Nicholas Cruz case there. So he became the man of the house there, and his mum, Dorothy, would be seen in public, often with bruises and cuts on her. Michael had a very cold and distant relationship with his father and showed no signs of grief when he passed away. There are also um, out there some very dark allegations of the relationship between Michael and his mother after Alfred passed away. There are some stories that there was their relationship became incestuous, which I would assume not Dorothy's wanting, but Mm -hmm. which is horrible, but. It's never been proven, so... But there are, it is out there. So we jump forward a couple of years. For almost the entirety of 1984 through to 1986, Michael, who was in his mid to late 20s, was unemployed, meaning that he spent most of those years either confined to his bedroom in his parents' house or out in the woods in his military gear. Bit of a Black Panther. Yeah, I wondered if they'd get on, Donald Nielsen and uh, Michael Ryan. I feel like they would, but I feel like Donald Army chats. Army chats, yeah, tactics, Mm. manoeuvres... Weaponry. Weaponry, artillery. Yeah. Favourite sieges. Uh, battles. Battles, yeah. Let's stop this now. So as an adult, he did show some sociopathic traits. Basically, when he was forced to interact with people that he didn't know, he told them that he was in the SAS. He told them that he was an antiques dealer. He told them that he was an international arms dealer. And he also said that he had multiple model girlfriends. He also said, this is unbelievable, that one of his colonels was going to buy him a Ferrari and also give him flying lessons. And the weirdest part of all of this is that he convinced his mother 
to corroborate all of his lies. Yeah, that is. Yeah, it wasn't something about buying a house as well. Yeah, um, he was going to get multiple residences around London. Mm. Just a very interesting. I, I could imagine him in his camouflage gear, sat at the bar. Someone comes over. It was very then... Jay from In Between Us, isn't it? Very, it like, yeah. very, yeah. In April of 1987, Michael took on a new role as part of the government scheme by Newbury Council, working as a labourer, working on various footpaths and fences along public passages aside the River Thames. He had attendance issues with the role, despite the fact that he loved being in remote, wooded areas and working. Yeah, it sounded like the kind of dream job for him. Mm. He would later leave this role and return to receiving unemployment benefits. Michael's behaviours continued to escalate through to his 27th birthday, who remained unemployed and mostly confined to his room, with the exception of leaving his house to stalk people in the woods. It's known at the time that Michael's mother bought him a new car every two years, despite the, the fact that both of them were heavily into their overdraft. One of Michael's stories to co-workers at the time was that he had been befriended by an army colonel who again was giving him flying lessons and was also buying him a Ferrari sports car. Even as an adult, still get everything he wanted, a new car every couple of years. He was still continuing to tell strangers that he had befriended an army colonel who was looking after him. He also basically said that um, he was staying at the colonel's home regularly, which was a big mm. uh, countryside mansion, according to him. But colonels aren't millionaires, are they? They're sort of You're, good. You love slagging off the army. No, I don't. You? I don't. I appreciate them. We've read it before, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, we don't want to go there again. But he also said that the colonel was purchasing a house for his mother as a gift. So maybe making up sort of like a male role model in his head. There are no parts of these stories that are believed to have been true. So of these different sort of stories that Michael was spinning to strangers, in the aftermath of the Hungerford Massacre, um, the media would go on to report a lot of these stories as fantasies, but they also added new dimensions, claiming that Michael had told people he had a homosexual relationship and as a result had contracted AIDS. An it's interesting story. It's an odd lie, isn't it? An odd, yeah, an odd lie. Perfect. Uh, not a perfect lie, but an odd lie. It was perfect that you said it was an odd lie, is what. Another story that he told as well that was that he was involved in a group who played war games in a fantasy series. And again, police did follow up all these different stories that Michael had been sharing in his adult life, but none of the uh, none of the police inquiries would show any of them to have any kind of foundation. Yeah. At the time of the massacre, Michael had no previous criminal record and no known medical or mental health condition. Michael was described by those who knew him all his life as a loner, a man without friends other than his mother, and an individual who spent most of his time in a world of fantasy. None of the fantasies were ever regarded as harmful, so no further probes were made. To the locals, Michael was seen as, I kind of think they viewed him as harmless. Quirky. Quirky, a bit strange, like you would feel uncomfortable with his presence. Yeah. But um, I yeah, get, you didn't see, you, see, you kind of saw, he keeps to himself, we'll leave it as that. Do you know who I'm getting a lot of similarities with? Ed Gain. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like a harmful sort of mama's boy. Yes, he's a, a bit weird in the woods, but it's just Michael being Michael, man. Let the boy wank. I just made a note of this before we do go into the timeline because I find this very interesting. So 10 days before the Hungerford Massacre, there was a uh, mass shooting in Australia which was conducted by a man named Julian Knight, where he killed seven people. It's referred to as the Hoddle Street Massacre. This was worldwide news at the time, so Michael would have seen this in the news. We're going to talk about some conspiracies at the end of the episode, but this may have been 
a massive factor in terms of showing inspiration yeah inspiration but showing michael what was possible mm. in terms of the arm i mean because he'd gathered which we're going to talk about uh, uh, a huge amount of weaponry uh, yeah i didn't realize that until doing the research but yeah big mass shooting in australia just 10 days before the hungerford massacre which may have played a part in what we're about to talk about and now we're going to go into the hungerford massacre timeline August 19th, 1987. Just after 12.30pm, local resident Ian George makes an urgent telephone call to the Thames Valley Police, informing them that there may be an armed robbery going on at the Golden Arrow petrol station in Froxfield. His reason for the phone call is that he has just come from the location, where he witnessed a young white male handling what he believes to be a shotgun. The young man described by Ian George's 27-year-old Hungerford resident, Michael Ryan. Upon vacating the forecourt on his motorbike, Ian is unaware at this point that Michael Ryan has entered the petrol station shop with the intention of shooting the cashier at point-blank range. Luckily for Kagoob Dean, the cashier on duty at the time, Ryan's gun gets jammed and her life is spared. Ryan runs back to his car and speeds away, tyres squealing as he rushes out of the forecourt, leaving Kakoob behind in a state of shock and who immediately calls the police. Unbeknown to Ian, Kakoob and the police, the attempted murder was not Ryan's first attack of the day. He has already committed a fatal shooting in the woods of Savonake Forest in Wiltshire less than half an hour before. Susan Godfrey and her two young children had been walking in the nearby Savonake Forest, Wiltshire, approximately seven miles away, when they were approached by agitated Michael Ryan. Susan Godfrey was actually advised by her father that this is a nice spot to go for a picnic, yeah. which adds to the heartache here. Susan, upon spotting Ryan carrying a gun, quickly ushers the two children into the car and tells them to wait there, all the while trying to remain calm and not express the true fear she is feeling. She's gently pleased with Ryan, but he does not pay attention to her and marches her at gunpoint deeper into the forest, where he proceeds to shoot her multiple times and leave her for dead in the wooded area. Michael's actually carrying a blanket, this time a picnic blanket, and people have alleged that he is planning to rape Susan, but Susan runs away from Ryan and he shoots her 13 times in the back as she is running away. She's just hideous. Susan's two children are later found by a local woman out walking in the woods. The children describe how the mummy has been shot and they're on their way home to their house with, with a blue door. Yeah, so they, horrific. Yeah, the woman didn't know if the kids were just playing a game, but they took the children home and called the police and, yeah, sadly, they weren't, they weren't lying. And this, we're going to talk about different conspiracies, but this is argued as potentially this was his only plan for the day, to, to go out and potentially try to rape someone. And with that not going to plan it alleges that the rest of the day kind of spiraled out of this particular event um, which again is a conspiracy after committing the atrocious and seemingly random murder of susan godfrey that is when michael drives his silver voxel astra five kilometers down the road to the pre-mentioned petrol station prior to the attempted shooting of kakoob as mentioned before he fills up his car along with a spare petrol canister he is carrying at approximately 12.45pm, Ryan is seen driving at speed through his neighbourhood of Southview, Hungerford. Neighbour Marjorie Jackson witnesses Ryan driving abnormally fast and notes that he appeared upset. She sees him get out of the car, slamming the door and rushing into his house, the property that he shares with his widowed mother, Dorothy Ryan, carrying the canister of petrol in his arms. The surrounding neighbours hear gunshots coming from the house and it later comes to light that these shots were aimed at and killed the family dog. Not satisfied with killing the dog, Ryan also frantically douses the house with the purchased petrol, strikes a match and allows it to fall to the petrol-soaked floor, immediately catching a light and setting fire to the home. The fire will go on to ravage his own house along with the free properties adjacent to it. 
basically, yeah, there's there's very famous sort of aerial footage of this happening, and you can see right through the house or the remains of his house um, in the aftermath. It's an odd thing to go like he's gone on the spree, obviously, and it seems to be, as you said, perhaps it's spurned on by the failed rape rape attempt. But it does go from you know just seamlessly going to burn your own house down, kill your family dog. It's very impulsive very yeah. random but then there's also thought into it because he's had to get the canister of petrol yeah. it's so strange it's so, so, so strange as the fire burns behind him he exits the house armed with three guns a Beretta 9mm semi-automatic pistol which is a handgun an M1 carbine semi-automatic assault rifle and a Kalashnikov AK-47 rifle Jesus he runs back to the car after trying multiple times to get the engine going the car fails to start he gets out of the car angrily and begins to actually fire at his own car before storming off down the road the thing about these guns, like we said, like this, there's quite a number of ones there, but he did obtain these guns legally. He had to prove at stages with license that he, he got rid of certain guns in order to obtain other guns. There was kind of a, he did everything legally. One of his um, licenses was countersigned by his own doctor. Mm. So he, he, as you said, he obtained everything completely legally. I mean, those, um, we've discussed this many times before. I am not a gun person, but I recognise that those are very serious rifles yeah. and particularly the, the M1 and the AK47 like there they tragically um even one of the policemen who was heavily involved in the case actually signed signed off on one of the certificates as well because again they're viewing him throughout his time growing up in the town harmless michael but then if you give a harmless man a gun he becomes a harmful man with a gun you can only wonder what his original plan was. If the car started that day, where would he have gone with the car? Would he have ended up out of Hungerford? Like, would there be lives spared? Or because it seemingly, like we said, if if it was the failed rape, which kind of made him angry and act out, like this has only made him further angry. It seems like he's had, as a result of that first murder, just a full blown breakdown. Yeah, and he's then kind of spur of the moment. Right, I'll get petrol. I'm going to shoot the dog, burn the house down, then get back in my car. Car hasn't started, and it's alleged. The la- one of the last things he says to kind of ensuing police is that if my car had started, none of this would have happened. A Hungerford wouldn't be a mess. So it's, yeah, very strange. He quickly comes across elderly neighbours Roland and Sheila Mason, who are out enjoying their garden. Without warning, he guns down the married couple, killing them instantly as he does so. After hearing multiple gunshots, Marjorie Jackson, the neighbour who noticed Ryan's erratic driving earlier on, comes to the window of her home to see what all the commotion is. Ryan spots her from the street, takes aim and fires. Bullets pierce the glass in her window and spray into her home. Marjorie receives a single shot to her back and although it knocks her to the floor, she manages to survive and crawls to the telephone to make a call to the emergency services who immediately dispatch police and the ambulance. So quite uh, interesting note on the emergency services responding to this event. Obviously at the time, calls were flooding in and some of the police that were responding didn't even know where Hungerford was. I mean, in the UK, mass shootings is not a common occurrence anyway, but I think at such a sleepy little place like Hungerford, it was such an unexpected event. She also manages to call her friend, George White, as she is concerned that due to her gunshot wound, she will now no longer be able to collect her husband, Ivan Jackson, from work. So even though Marjorie has been shot in the back, she's still worrying trying to husband, yeah, yeah. worrying about her husband. It's it's yeah, bless her. It's um yeah. And it's and another thing is it's completely at random. These people have done nothing to wrong Michael. Mm. It's not like he's made a list of people he's gonna target. He's just very much spur of the moment. There's a person, there's a person. Yeah. Coming from a small village and growing up in small villages, it's crazy to think that this is just like any other small town or village in the UK. You walk about, you're gonna see multiple people. It's just literally like imagining that, but someone with a rifle, yeah, which is just horrifying. Horrifying. 
So there's a recording the call Marjorie makes to the police and in true British fashion she says something along the lines of There's a man wreaking havoc on the street, he's firing a gun everywhere, people are really scared. Oh yeah, and I've been shot. That's Marjorie there, she's putting everyone kind of ahead of herself and being shot as an afterthought there on the call. So whilst Marjorie waits for emergency services to arrive, she continues to listen to the random firing of bullets that Ryan is pumping out in the street. Eyewitnesses report him as shooting anything and everything at random. So there's some reports that he apparently as well would see some people and he didn't shoot them. Like he smiled and he like put pointing the gun at them and went bang. And they even said, shh, as if like, yeah, be quiet and walk, and walk on to some people. He was waving children off the street as well. So he was sort of aware consciously of what was going on mm. but yeah he's also at this point dressed in quite bizarre attire so he's put a camouflage headband on and he's also wearing a sleeveless bulletproof jacket so he looks very much in his perhaps in his own mind like rambo mm. something out of predator 14 year old lisa mildenhall curious about the noise comes out of the house to find out what it is upon coming face to face with her ryan proceeds to shoot her in the legs Lisa manages to call back into the house and seek medical help from her mother, who administers first aid whilst attempting to call the ambulance. By this point, there are so many calls trying to get through to the emergency services that the lines end up getting blocked. This would be a strong criticism that the Thames Valley Police would later receive, as at the time of the shootings, only two phone lines to the police station were in operation. It was the old system where you had to call through and ask BT to transfer you through to the emergency services. As we said, a sleepy little town... I mean, obviously, they haven't had a need for any more than that before. Obviously, this is not an irregular occurrence, thank God. This just goes to show how unprepared they were for such an attack. Yeah, well, like, even the even the police that were responding to the scene were unarmed. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a frightening set of circumstances. Michael Ryan makes his way over to the town's common, which is essentially like a, a central park. A green space. A green, very green space of, of a town or a village, where he comes face-to-face in contact with Kenneth Clements, who is out walking his dog with his family. Ryan shoots and kills Kenneth mercilessly, leaving his family to look on in horror, which is just hideous. He then heads back towards the cul-de-sac to continue his shooting spree. By this point, the police have sprung into action, setting up roadblocks throughout the town in order to divert traffic away from the danger scene. However, in an unfortunate turn of events, some of the roadblocks actually end up diverting cars directly towards Southview, where Ryan is still situated. PC Roger Burton has picked up the alert of a shooter and is driving towards the scene. Just as he arrives in the police car, Ryan emerges from the direction of the common. Ryan raises his rifle and shoots at him. The bullet smashes through the police car window and directly into the PC's chest. The shot forces the police car off the road and into the telegraph pole. Just as PC Burton is radioing into the police control stating that he's been shot, he dies shortly afterwards, still clutching the bloodied radio microphone in his hand. Even after PC Barrington's life has clearly been taken, Ryan continues to shoot at the police car, leaving it riddled with a total of 23 bullet holes. PC Jim Wood, colleague and friend of PC Roger Barrington, is in the police car that was following. He arrives on the scene and comes face to face with Michael Ryan at the other end of the footpath that connects to Southview. Ryan starts shooting towards him and the other policemen on the scene. The bullets narrowly miss the men and they're lucky to escape with their lives. After firing at the police, Ryan moves on, turning his attention back to the street. Mother and daughter Linda and Alison Chapman are approaching Southview in their car when they come face to face with the shooter. The two women initially think he must be part of the police team, but quickly realise otherwise as he takes aim at the car and starts shooting. Both women are shot, but thankfully they both survive and manage to escape the scene by putting the car into reverse and driving off. Ryan moves along Fairview Road, and that is where he comes across 84-year-old Abdul Khan, who is shot and killed in his garden. Alan Lepertip, a local Coleman who was friendly with Ryan, is also shot as he is rushing home to check on his family. He luckily survives his gunshot wounds. Next in line is an ambulance that has arrived on scene at Southview to treat the wounded victims. 
Ryan opens fire, shattering the windscreen of the ambulance. Both Hazel Haslip and Linda Bright manage to escape with minor injuries. They back out of the narrow cul-de-sac to safety, radioing into the second ambulance en route to warn them of the imminent danger that awaits them. At that same moment, Marjorie Jackson's husband, Ivor, is arriving home with his friend George White. Naive to the severity of the situation, the two men drive straight to Ryan's path, who immediately starts shooting at them. You would have thought that Marjorie would have told George to naive to the incident a bit peculiar yeah I mean maybe maybe they thought again because the diverts had been put in place maybe they thought they were driving to safety mm. uh, and they obviously if Ivan knew she'd been shot he'd want to get there by any means yeah but it's it's horrible just the I was walking the dogs this morning around the village and just the idea of a British village with someone roaming about with rifles there might no. be people listening right now yeah. walking around in a British village or town alone and living or, by himself yep yeah. rats in the garden that he kills but don't think he kills them pardon I'm talking about someone made up. Yeah. The imaginary person. Yeah. Yeah, he wants a fish tank in his room like James Bond. He thinks he's a secret spy. What else have you got? What do you mean? It's an imaginary person. I know. You're a creative guy. Yeah. I'm really yeah. creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was walking the dogs this morning. British village. Was a city boy for many years, but now a village boy again. Oh, he's telling yourself anyway, here. Anyway, anyway, anyway. You were hey. a city boy. You in a little village outside of Leeds. Yeah, well, that was a big city. You weren't in it, though. I was pretty much in it. Yeah, five minutes. But the idea of someone clearly without their mind, roaming through a village or a small town in England with rifles just taking pot shots at random people is absolutely horrific. Whereas this kind of thing happens more frequently in America, which we've talked about. But just this idea that he's just randomly going up different streets, shooting different people for no reason, it is a spree, it's a rampage, and it's just that idea, this happening... What The point I'm trying to make, although I've gone quite a scenic route about it, is the fact that this could happen in England terrifies me and the fact that it did happen can happen anywhere it it can but it happened in England and that scares me guy walking around without his mind (laughs) that's what you said pretty much yeah conversational piece that it's interesting hearing the point of view of a city boy about this thank you so could we go back to the case by all means thank you so much one of the bullets penetrates the car window and hits George White, killing him instantly. Another bullet ricochets off part of the car and hits Ivor Jackson in the ear. Ivor collapses back into his seat, playing dead and praying that Ryan will bypass him if he believes him already to be dead. There are now two cars blocking the narrow alleyway to Southview, preventing easy access for the fire service who are attempting to arrive on scene to get the now blazing houses under control. Yeah, because that's the point. That's still all ongoing. The scene is horrific. Like in America, this happens every day, everywhere, constantly. But in a little village... In oh. England, yeah. And that's coming from... I used to live in the city. <laughs> Ryan's mother, Dorothy, is driving back to Southview on her way back home after a job interview. A neighbour runs out into the road, attempting to stop and warn her, but she ignores him and drives onwards. She arrives home to find the street blocked by two cars containing George White, Ivor Jackson and PC Berriton. She gets out of her own car and immediately spots her son, Michael Ryan armed with a gun and randomly firing at objects in the street. She cries out in horror for him to stop. He takes pause for a moment and turns his face to his mother. Her pleas do not register with him and he stares blankly back at her before raising the gun and shooting her four times, killing her in her own front garden. By this point, the tactical firearms unit had arrived in the vicinity. They had been contacted after the first report of a shooting. However, that particular day, the TFU had been on a special training day over an hour away from Hungerford. Up until this point, no armed police officers had been assigned to the scene. So again... How do they even drive? Together. That's good. 
that's another point the police kind of made about this case was we like to live in a society over here where the police aren't armed and the public therefore feel, feel safer. You know, there's a complete polar opposite over in America where people think guns make it safer, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. We won't get into that. So saying you can't live and have it two ways, you can't expect the police to turn up armed immediately if you know, we want a society where it's not needed. So, which is quite an interesting one. Like, the death of his mother slows the pace of the shootings down, and Brian decides to turn away from the housing estate and head towards the town's playground and open air swimming pool. Because the the mother as well, like that's his best friend, and he's mm. either just completely going through some sort of psychological breakdown and not registering with the fact that it's his own mother, or there's another conspiracy that there had been some fairly incestuous relations between the two, and as a result, his reaction was to go on this spree. As in sh- so the, the conspiracy is essentially his whole life, no female relationships, no interactions with females at all. He's then had a fairly unconventional encounter with his mother, and as a result... Incestuous sexual relationship with his mother. Yeah, to be clear. Yeah. yeah. And as a result of that, overnight, he's had a breakdown thinking about what's happened and how it's happened, and then gone on to this spree. But that's a conspiracy, not my conspiracy. It's just out there. As he does so, he shoots and kills Francis Butler, who is out walking his dog. He drops the M1 carbine, abandoning it close to Butler's body, and continues on down the road. His next victim is taxi driver Marcus Bernard, who Ryan fires at five or six times before one of the shots broke through the glass of Marcus's taxi, killing him. At this point, eyewitnesses describe how Ryan discards the gun he has just used to murder Marcus Bernard and throws it on the floor, seemingly in disgust. However, after a few seconds, he changes his mind and picks it back up before continuing on with it. Ryan heads away from the scene and walks north along Priory Avenue. The next few victims come as a result of police roadblocks mentioned earlier and they drive right into Ryan's murderous path. This next instance is, um, there's an interview with the son of these two and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. So Douglas and Kathleen Wainwright are on their way to visit their son when Ryan shoots at their vehicle. The shots kill Douglas and severely injure Kathleen, who luckily survives. They were only 100 yards from their intended destination. So basically, Douglas and Kathleen were the parents of PC Trevor Wainwright, who was actually off duty that particular day, and they were coming into town to visit him from Kent, and there's interviews of him recollecting the events and blaming himself for not being there, but also blaming himself for the fact that they were in town to visit him. And it's, yeah, it's so upsetting. Um, Yeah, tragic. And yeah, they were only 100 yards from their intended destination. Ryan continues down the road, shooting at houses, random objects, and whoever comes into contact with him. He injures and fatally wounds a few more people before coming across 22-year-old Sandra Hill, who is listening to music in her car. He shoots her once in the chest, killing her instantly. He then shoots his way into the home of 66-year-old Jack Gibbs and his 62-year-old wife, Myrtle, startling the pensioners and opening fire on them. Jack is killed instantly, and Myrtle unfortunately dies a couple of days later from her injuries. Ryan vacates their property and continues to shoot at neighbouring houses as he trundles along Priory Road. 34-year-old Ian Playle is struck in the neck as he is driving along the road with his wife and two children in the car. His family miraculously survives by injury, but Playle isn't so lucky, and he dies in hospital a couple of days later from his gunshot wound. At approximately 1.45pm, the police helicopter arrives on the scene, broadcasting warnings to residents and calling for Ryan to give up his weapons and surrender. Hungerford resident George Noon takes his grandchildren inside out of harm's way before Ryan spots him, takes aim and shoots him in the, both the eye and the shoulder. Noon luckily survives, although his vision is impaired for life. Ryan continues along Priory Road before coming to his old school, John O'Groats, at around 2pm. The school thankfully is closed for the summer holidays and there are no teachers or children on site. 
So obviously summer holidays. Um, it was actually market day though in Hungerford, which meant that the streets would be busier, the market would be on. But luckily, he's not gone in the direction of the market. It is unknown exactly what Ryan did in the school within the next hour or so, but after the TFU had been instructed to stake out the school as a possible location, they spotted Ryan in a third-floor classroom as he draws attention to himself by throwing his remaining rifle out of the window. This leaves him with just his handgun. At approximately 5.26pm, the police hear Ryan's voice for the first time and manage to coax him into an exchange of words, hoping they can convince him to surrender. Ryan repeatedly asks the officers about the welfare of his mother and exclaims that Hungerford must be a bit of a mess. Asking how his mum's doing after shooting her. That's it. That, he must have been in a... Well, unless this is just him trying to be smart, which I don't think it is. He's clearly in some sort of huge psychotic breakdown. Other reported mutterings include him saying, if only Makar had started, and exclaiming that he had a live, unpinned grenade. The officers report Ryan as appearing lucid and relatively calm, and they remain hopeful of the situation. Just after 6.30pm, Ryan allegedly says, I wish I had stayed in bed. At 6.52pm, officers on the scene hear a single gunshot. Michael Ryan has pulled the trigger of his Beretta handgun, committed suicide. Bringing... That should have a G in it, sorry. Like a Cadillac, should have a G in it. (laughs) Bringing the day's atrocity... (laughs) Fucking great. (laughs) Bringing the day's atrocities to an end. The events of that day and Michael Ryan's cold-blooded actions left 17 people dead, including himself and his mother, and 15 others seriously injured. Four houses, including his own, were destroyed in the fire. So that was the timeline. We're now going to move into a bit of the aftermath of the Hungerford Massacre. So to date, it is still unknown what forced Michael Ryan to behave the way he did that day and commit such an atrocious act of terror. If there had been any evidence of prior planning to his home, that was all destroyed when he set light to the property. Another interesting point to make is that if anyone could tell you about what was going on with his own mental state or in recent behaviours, it probably would have been his mother, obviously his best friend, person he spent the most time with, but obviously he's he's gunned her down. So there's no way of knowing what his last few days, mm. you know, there's no friends, there's no one to give an insight into where he was mentally in the build up to the massacre. The impact that the Hungerford Massacre had on society was immense. It changed policing tactics in the UK as well as the general attitude towards the use of guns forever. A year later, semi-automatic weapons were banned by the government. Up until that point, they could legally be acquired, as Michael Ryan had done so. All his guns were legally owned. The Firearm Amendment Act of 1988 was introduced to control the sale, ownership and use of automatic and semi-automatic rifles and the FCC, which is the Firearms Consultative Committee, was also introduced by way of monitoring, reviewing and improving the legislation moving forward. Due to the mess that ensued as a result of the failed communications helpline, which Tom pointed out, police were granted a new system with separate channels for serious incidents. The Hungerford Massacre still to this day remains one of the UK's worst mass shootings. I believe Vodafone actually, on the day of the attacks, helped try and provide more lines to the uh, people making the calls. Wow. Because so many calls were going through, they provided uh, new lines for the police directly. But yeah, it's a staggering case, a very interesting case. I can see why so many people have... Uh, asked for this and nominated this so many times since we've been doing the podcast a lot of unanswered questions and ben you mentioned numerous uh, conspiracy theories that you're going to reveal to us now about theories of why this attack happened and uh try and shed some more light 
So the first kind of conspiracy is that 10 days before the Hungerford Massacre, Julian Knight massacred seven people over in Australia, um, which was dubbed the Hoddle Street Massacre. And, and again, it was it was uh, global news at the time, so Michael would have um, seen that on the TV. Another common um, belief is without any kind of m- clear motive or suicide note or any kind of manifesto left by, by uh, Michael. So a lot of people believe that literally there was no planning to this, no uh, premeditation to this. It all literally spiralled from his first victim, Susan Godfrey, that basically being that he planned to, to rape her. It then turned into a murder when she tried to flee. And as a result, he's just escalated his behaviours and it's all spiralled well out of control. And then finally, a little more of a loose conspiracy is that there were allegations and and rumours around town that he had engaged in an incestuous affair with his mother in the days leading up to the attack. And as a result of that, he festered on his emotions and mental... Yeah, it's it's very spurious, isn't it? I mean, like... I don't see why that would then lead him to do that. No, I mean, the only thing that kind of lines up with it is the fact that he then went and murdered his own mother, set fire to the house. Yeah, but then you imagine he would... I'd imagine if it was that was the reason that he would... He would just have killed his mother. Yeah, or yeah. first. It seemed like she only killed it by chance. Does she? Yeah, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole massacre seemed to just be wrong place at the wrong time yeah. for all of his victims. He hadn't pre, uh, pre-selected any of them. There's theories that basically in the days building up to the massacre, something happened between him and his mother that caused him to spiral out of control uh, mentally. And then obviously he's gone to the woods, as he often would have done, but this time armed fully. And um, yeah, it's just escalated then onwards. But it's there's no that's the interesting thing. None of his childhood lines up with any of the other mass shooters or spree killers that we've covered. There's not really, apart from a little bit of bullying and the fact that he was raised predominantly by his mother, very loose, yeah. distant relationship with his father. He's not endured any abuse. He's not. There must have been some mental health conditions that he was never diagnosed with. It seems. Yeah, it I agree. There, there could be no other explanation for this. Yeah, and there are lots of similarities with the Nicholas Cruz case in terms of him to be able to do and get away with whatever he wanted, mm. and there was seemingly no consequences to his behaviours, and it's escalated to this point, and it's just yeah, it's an absolute tragedy. So also, obviously, as we mentioned throughout his childhood as well as his teenage and early adult years, throughout most of his life, really, he had very heavily immersed himself in to the world of war and soldiers and basically convinced himself he had a lot of sociopathic behaviors mm. he was telling people when he needed to interact with strangers or people he just met for the first time he was telling them that he was part of the SAS he was telling them that he had a colonel that was buying him a ferrari and giving mm. him flying lessons and all this stuff it could be that in some warped reality of his he convinced himself he was a soldier and everyone was the enemy yeah. and everyone was the enemy set himself a mission exactly the part that really confuses me is the setting his house on fire part because yeah. to do that, he's had to plan it somewhat. He's driven to the petrol station, got his canister mm. of fuel. Well, then it's not planning this because he could have just had the idea when he was at the petrol station. Yeah, but... For, and also, if you follow the, his footsteps on the day as well, he's not covered like a large... He's just literally walking mm. around in a circle pretty much. It's such a weird case, isn't It'd it? It would be fascinating it's, to know if he had sliding doors moment about the car start and what that would have meant. I would have thought, if anything, probably the car not starting saved many more lives I would have thought yeah he he must have had in his mind maybe or maybe he was just going to drive somewhere and decide to end his life I don't know yeah because he said none of this would have happened but could it have happened in another town or city I don't know so many theories to it and there's literally nothing left behind no one close enough to him to know what was going on he's killed his mother who was the only one that could probably give us an insight yeah and ended his own life yeah, let us know in the comments below if there's any theories that you've heard or you believe as to why this would have happened as we said it's a fascinating case uh, one that is still kind of so open in terms of 
reasons why it happened. Obviously, we know who did it, but yeah, fascinating case. Uh, ben, it's time for that period of the uh, episode where I'm sure people very much look forward to the lookalikes. Absolutely. I have one. I've got a few. Now it's time for the lookalikes. What does it look like? That looks like a bit like that. Yeah, it looks a bit like it. Do you want to go first, Ben? <clears throat> Str- I, I did struggle. Yep. I wanted to use the um, I'm just waiting for a mate guy, but I couldn't use him because Snowtown. I already used him. Oh, that hasn't stopped you before. Have I repeat used? I used Michael Shannon last week for the second time. I have repeat used. I'm not going to use him, but that, that's actually a yeah, good can, one. Yeah, it's not a bad shout. So my first one, I told you about this yesterday, and it's kind of threw it at you, thinking I probably won't actually use it. I'm going for Nick Frost, particularly Nick Frost of the Shaun of the Dead era. Anymore? I've then gone for um, Sam from Game of Thrones. Put a bucket out on him. No? No. I've then gone for um, Sidekick Simon. That's good. Tim Keys, yeah. I get someone, or at least two, I know, I didn't two, people, him up. two people say that I look like him. No, you don't. You don't. Yeah. No. And then finally, I don't know why, I get a little bit of young Donald Trump. Not young, but sort of middle-aged Ooh. Donald Trump. Just in the face a little bit. It's the eyes, isn't it? Yeah. I like that one. I like yeah. that. The reason I like it, Ben, Yeah. is unorthodox. Okay. And I can see it. Thanks so much. Great work. Thank yeah, you, guys. One of the best. Yes, yeah. I've done... Shit, six, six and a bit serious. Um, I'm not, this is even gonna, either going to go well or not, mine. But you said you put a lot of work and effort into. I'll this. show you. Yeah, hear me out. Right, we're going to pop a visual up while you do this. Yeah, right? yeah. So I've gone for Paul Dano, but then Fat Booth in black and white. It's yeah, the eyes. Very good. It's his eyes. I think there's something about the, the eyes. eyes. Literally, if you have them like that, one, two, three. Yeah. If you put the pattern on his hat as well, yeah. which I'm sure you can do because you're good at that. Yeah, it's, I had to fat booth him and put him black and white, which is cheating in the lookalike thing. It's good though. Yeah, pulled down a bit. I, th- I think Trump, weirdly, uh, would, would win that. He's thing. got something in the face. Definitely, definitely has. Yeah, probably find a better photo than that, but yeah. Young Trump, well, not young Trump, but Trump in his 30s. Yeah, Home Alone Trump. Yeah, home, yeah. thank you. Home Alone with his mum, Trump. And also a quick shout out to Gully Garments for dressing us for this series. Today is it's a bit of an 80s look. Yeah, come um, with Adidas numbers. Yes. Or I, Adidas. I am really Adidas, please. Yeah, I know. And I, yeah, I'm really I really like really like this outfit. They have lots oh, wow. of nice sport sport sporty jackets and yeah. uh, shell suits that we like to wear that they have over there. And a, a little champion t shirt as well. Yeah, that was a nice white. surprise. Yeah. It was. Yeah. You can see his little logo on it. Champion t shirt. Yeah, there she is. There she is. So yeah, very happy with these. But yeah, festival don't forget, season. It's not anymore. European <laughs> festivals. Oktoberfest. Don't forget to use our codes KILLBEN Kill Tom on Gully Garment's website to get 30% off. Guys ben. and girls clothing as well. So oh yeah. I think the girls section is pretty good Ooh. from what I've heard. Have you had a little sneaky look? A little sneaky look. Yeah, How is she? Who? She. Fine. Good. And we'll be back next week with uh, the audience vote which yes. it did actually um, the, the voting ended during this filming of this and it's the Port Arthur Massacre. That's it. So next week the Port Arthur Massacre. Mm, A lot of people, there was mixed because a lot of people really want to see Bundy and then a lot of people really didn't want to see Bundy. It was like everyone's, you know, it's been done so many times. You know, almost every case we've covered has been done a lot of times, but that's the thing with true crime, isn't it, Tom? Some of them have been done. So, but I'm very happy with the result because I did not. Anyway. Sorry about Ben's little episode there. Um, So yeah, with social media, don't forget to follow us on TikTok, on Facebook, on Twitter, and Instagram. 
um, yeah, all, all of those things we're, we're on. And, and, you know, we've started posting shorts here on YouTube. Yeah. Um, which, which is fun. So why not give them a view if you haven't? We, st- we also have a store, icmp.store, which we have lots of goodies on. And we are, as I said, we're still kind of figuring out uh, our next steps in the store. So bear with us on that. It's still relatively well stocked, though. Um, yeah. Christmas ca- is coming up. So. Yeah. And we, we announced it on a Patreon. I'm going to say it on this just to make sure that we do it. We have, we have casualty stock as well, which has just been released, which is going to be discounted stock. It's like a slight misprint on them. Nino, Nino, Nino. Casualty. How did the theme go? The casualty stock is going to be on this store and it's going to be heavily discounted to a slight misprint on it. Some people will be like, I can't see it. I could see it and I couldn't stop seeing it. Is this a bad thing to say? Um, Basically, (laughs) the eyes of the skulls are not negative print. Yeah, they're reverse. I think they look quite cool. They look cartoony eyes. Yeah, more cut. Yeah, a bit bit zoned out. I was was going to call them caffeinated stock because they're like, whoop. But um, we, yeah. thought, we thought casualty stock was only better. So yeah, some casualty stock will be out there. Now. All the sizes will be available on them. So be sure to check them out. You also um, unlock us a, a sneaky and tasty discount to the store by becoming a Patreon, which is £1 a week. Patreon.com forward slash couldmurderpod. At the time of filming, I think we've got like 83, 84 episodes-ish. And, you know, there's some exclusive content on there. Audio and visual episodes of everything. Done some big, big cases recently. Some big, big ones. As I said, guys, the ICMAP cult is recruiting. So why not send us an email with your with your stats and kind of your uh, attri- you attributes are. and your, your occupation? What, what would you bring to the cult? And we'll read some of them out next episode and kind of start establishing a bit of a, a bit of a community there. Yeah, because kind of. it'd be fun. Yeah, sounds great. And we're now down to the final three episodes mm. of the series. Um, some big things to be revealed, I guess. I mean, you know what's coming next week, but the final two. Wow, you're going to be some happy people. Wow. Exactly. Wowzers. Anyway, guys, like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep on doing what you're doing. Well, if you've got like a imaginary sergeant in your life, buying your houses, taking your flying, telling you to do awful things. Don't get too close to your mum. Yeah, and don't fucking shoot cows with an air rifle, because that's bad in everyone's book. And humans and dogs. Oh, anyone. Uh, taking your house on fire for no reason. This is bucket hat camo. I only see that one coming. Um, uh, and if you get bullied at school, tell people about it because then you can get help. And if you don't do that, then why not do that? Um, don't lie about being an antiques dealer because anyone could do lie about anything. Uh, and if you see someone get bullied, tell someone. It's next to Victim Sex driver Marcus Bernard, who Ryan fires at. <laughs> <coughs> His next victim is taxi driver Marcus Bernard, who Ryan fires five or six times. <coughs> you have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast, written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound. Edited by Ben Bonsey. Additional research and timelines by Lauren McKenna-Parker. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten. And theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Music and Spotify. For additional exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash pod. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. 
For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.